0: Are we ready for Genesis 43? Are we all there? Anybody can uh, can dive in. Do you have an electronic version or there should be a Bible in front of you? And if you want a print Bible, take the one in front of you. It's authorized, church authorized stealing. They're not even there. Everything is, everything is upside down. Okay, how about this? If you want a print version of the Bible and you couldn't, you know, secretly steal it this morning, openly ask to steal one and we'll give you one after the service. How's that? Genesis 43. This chapter of Genesis is smacked out in the the middle of the story of Joseph. We love Joseph's story because perhaps only in the death of Jesus Christ Himself do we see a greater example of God working through something that has no other explanation. Jesus dies on a cross in a terrible moment, a, a bad thing happening. But we know our trust, the entire Christian faith down through the ages has been built on the fact that God was in fact working good through that bad thing. And Joseph's story, other than the cross of Christ, Joseph's story is perhaps the most obvious and most beautiful example we have in Scripture of God's ability to mean good, to work good through a bunch of people who get it wrong and who don't see, who are living basically in darkness And as we read the story, we learn that God is always present, that he's for them, and he is working for their good. Where we're at as we begin Genesis 43 is Joseph, who is the youngest and the most favored son of Jacob. He was favored to the point where his other brothers hated him. They said, we're going to take care of you, and in a moment when they had opportunity, they threw him in a pit first, and then they sold him off into slavery. They lied to their father about his fate. So Jacob has been grieving his death. Joseph then, passively, mostly through his whole life, things continue to happen to him such that his interpretation of dreams puts him eventually in the palace of Pharaoh. And he is the de facto ruler of all the land of Egypt. He has foreseen and foretold that there would be seven years of plenty. Good and plenty. I think it's a candy bar, and it also describes what took place for seven years in Egypt, and in that time, Joseph was hoarding up and storing up and managing things so that when a famine came, they would have food. As we last saw them, the brothers were forced to go and submit themselves before Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph, to get some food, but they also ended up leaving behind Simeon. One of the brothers was forced to remain in prison while they left with the food. The other detail that will be necessary for you to know as we read 43 is that the money that they bought the food with was secretly put back in their bags and they found it when they got home and they're terrified that they somehow swindled the man who is in charge of the only known food in their world. And that is the story where we pick it up in the beginning of Genesis 43. I'm going to look at this in the two different scenes that are presented to us, verses 1 through 14. We're going to look at, and I'm just going to call this section Fear, Blame, and Negotiation. Fear, Blame, and Negotiation marks the whole first scene of verses 1 through 14, starting in 15 through the end of the chapter. we're going to call that section Feasting and Mercy. So I want to start reading. I'm just going to read down through 14 to start. This is Genesis 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe, In the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man." a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved verses 1 through 14, is a demonstration and a description of difficulty. They're not in a good spot. Jacob, as the leader of this house, is not thriving in Canaan. Maybe all the promises or thoughts that he had about what this would be like, none of them are happening. This is not what he imagined. What is going to happen is that their difficulty is going to be so severe that they are hemmed in by the circumstances of life. Verse 1 told us and reminds us, I spent great pains last week to to tell us how difficult a famine would be in real life. Very few of us have ever had the pain of wondering where food was going to come from, to see ourselves starving to death. But this was the circumstance. The King James Version actually says the famine was sore in the land in those days. There's, I don't read King James too often, I think there's good reasons if you talk it through sometimes, but uh, if you ever want just good words, like new words to use with your friends, just switch your devos to King James sometimes and you'll get some new words. This is how the famine was in the land. It was sore, painful, difficult in the land. And this one circumstance was only one of difficult circumstances for them. Sometimes the things that are thrown at you are necess- not necessarily anyone's fault. They're just the fallen world working against you. They have no food. They stay to the ground, Can I have some food? The ground says, no, you cannot. And it causes a difficulty of circumstance such that all of their other problems, I believe, are intensified. What are some of the other problems? Well, the family is grieving. Jacob is essentially still sorrowful to the point of death. He has never gotten over the loss of Joseph. Now he's angry again that Simeon has been left behind. So they are dealing with grief. More than that, we know that the brothers who are also experiencing the severity and the soreness of the famine are living in their guilt. Imagine trying to manage the guilt of having lied to your father about the death of his favorite child and watching him grieve all the way to the grave and having to keep up pretenses. See, that's the thing. The thing about hiding and the thing about lying and the thing about pretenses is it's exhausting. It's a burden that will kill you. And they're living with this. They have physical problems because of the land. They have grief problems because of loss. They have guilt problems because of their own sin. And then more than that, their relationship seems strained. You know, there's one thing about difficult circumstances is that it causes people's real personalities sometimes to come out. You ever been in a difficult spot? You ever been in a place where in the middle of it, all of a sudden, everybody's just yelling a little bit? You don't know why? Just went crazy? At one point in my life, I trained to be a high ropes course, high ropes course, uh, like, coordinator person. I was a guide for this high ropes course. And the whole training of the high ropes course was meant to bring out, to try to break people. I know that sounds terrible, like I was waterboarding them or something. But the whole point was to try to break them. And we would have business groups come out or teams of youth group kids or whatever it was. And the goal was to create circumstances where people would have a self-awareness to say, is this what I'm really like or what am I so fearful of? And as I did the high ropes course, I would sometimes take the person that was the most talkative and the most bossy and I would say, Jim, for the next 10 minutes you cannot talk. And they would sieve, right? Or I would say to the person who was the most agile and the most, you know, jumpy around kind of person, you must be carried the rest of the way. The whole point was to create difficulty so that people would start to have to interact with one another. And unfortunately, what happens sometimes when difficulty comes is that what comes out of our true selves, we don't like. Conflict comes up. And every exchange for the last couple of chapters between Jacob and his sons shows this symptom. Judah, in his response to his father saying, go buy us some food, you can almost hear the sarcasm in his voice like, Dad, how many times do we have to go over this? At the end of the last chapter, they told him explicitly, we can go back and get food, but we have to bring Benjamin. Jacob said no. And now as it continues on, you can almost see Judah roll his eyes. Sure, Dad, just go get some food. Listen, the man told us if we don't bring Benjamin, we cannot Go. And then it's as though Jacob responds, oh, well, I'm glad you brought this up about my kids who the man wants to keep. And he gets angry at them for their incompetence, and then more than that, for their unloving approach to his kids. Jacob feels put out by them. This reminds me of the story. He He says, why in the world would you tell them that Benjamin was back home? You know, one of the basic rules, and this is, I think, what Jacob's telling. When you're dealing with people who can harm you, people who have power over you, sometimes the best thing to do is to say as little as possible. This is like a general rule of life. Don't say more than you have to. And so Jacob's saying to them, not only have you guys been incompetent and you've made me grieve and Joseph is gone, why are you going around telling him about the rest of the things I love? Did you tell him the combination to our safe as well? Why? Why would you tell them? This reminds me of a story when I was in these groups of young people who were preparing to go on these trips, right? I was not on this trip. One of my best friends, who's in my wedding, prepared with 15 other people to go to a nation that was constitutionally secular and open, but by practice very, very closed. And they knew this. And so going, they took great care and they decided, well, we're not going to go and be obvious, obnoxious uh, about things. We're not going to put up a big tent and have a bullhorn. And, you know, that might not not only would that maybe not be a good idea anyway, but for now, in this place, not at all. And what they did is they went and they prayed through cities and they got to know people and they tried to serve the best they could. And one day, they'd been there for a couple of days, and one day they said, well, let's go to a park and try to meet people and they were just going to ask generic spiritual questions, like a spiritual survey of sorts. And it was in the midst of them walking around that a, a plainclothes police officer overheard them asking questions to someone. And so he got involved and said, Well, hey, what are you guys doing and what's going on? And I said, We're on a, a visa, we're here visiting. And he said, Okay, well, that's great. You guys haven't done anything wrong and you can go in a second, but just, can I see your visa? Well, The kid did not have his visa or his passport because if there's one thing that you should know right now is that if you're ever leading groups of young people across the world, never trust a 19-year-old with his passport. That's like a basic rule of life. So he didn't have his passport. And he has to call the leader of the group. He calls the leader of the group. He says, hey, we're just about to be let go here. We got questioned by a guy, but we just need to see my visa to make sure that I'm here legitimately. We didn't smuggle in or something. So without thinking, the leader grabs his bag and he rushes off and there in front of the plainclothes police officer, he pulls out the massive bag, clear bag, and rifles through all 15 passports of the people that he's with. And the officer says, why do you have so many passports, sir? Probably at first thinking this is some sort of suspicious Jason Bourne stuff going on or a smuggling ring of some kind. But within a few short minutes, more officers are called, a paddy wagon comes and all 15 members of their team are round up and brought to jail. They spend the night in jail. The next day, they await their court hearing. They stand in front of a judge who says to them, I have good news for you. Good news for you is that you've done nothing wrong. Constitutionally, you're fine. In fact, we're an open and free country. We're glad that you're here. You can have any conversations you want. That's great. And so everyone says, well, this is really good news. We're happy. And he says, but what may be bad news for you, it's really for your own good. We've done two things. One, we kept you in jail overnight for your own safety. Because having seen you interact with police, people may have been suspicious. And we don't know how that would have gone for you. So for your safety, we kept you overnight. And then because we further want to make sure that you're okay, we're deporting you this afternoon from the country. We don't want this to become a news story and then you would fear for your lives. And really for your own good, we're going to kick you out. And the one question, apart from all of the things that happened there, including one of my best friends saying to me later, how envious are you that you don't have I spent a night in a foreign jail story like I do? But of all the things that couldn't be let go from this, the major question that remained, and everyone continued to ask is, why did you bring the whole bag of passports? Why did you have to tell them there's this whole crew of us? Why didn't you keep some information quiet? That's the... Instinct here. Jacob, imagine all these months, all these years going by, and he's still rehearsing. He's still upset. Why did you tell them about Benjamin? You've only endangered us and our livelihood further. The whole point of this entire exchange, the back and forth of it, is that they're in dire straits. Sometimes life, humbles you to the point. Sometimes life pushes you to the point. Sometimes life hands you in in order to make you more aware of yourself, in order to look around and to say, I need help and I can't do this, in order to say, I need to look beyond me. And what has taken place here, despite all the uncertainty and the difficulty of dealing with a foreign land, of going into Egypt when you're powerless of bringing your most precious possessions not Benjamin I've already lost so much sometimes God orchestrates life in such a way that you have no other choice than to go to a place of provision it's funny how they don't they know less they know less than us as we read it and they just refer to Joseph as the man there is a person who is able to save them. There is a person who has provisions. There is a place they can go. They just don't want to go because of what it will cost them and how little control they will have there. So they're imagining this scenario. They're all rehearsing it. Okay, we have a huge need and we're going to stand in front of someone who has a ton of power. How is this going to go well? And they resort to what I would say is the most common human ways to resort to dealing with authority. That is fear first and foremost. This passage says a number of times, and whether it's implicit or explicit, they're afraid to go back down to Egypt. They're afraid of what they'll find. They're afraid of being found out. They're afraid of having to stand in front of them and say, okay, so remember when we bought food before? Well, we didn't really buy it. We stole it, but we tried to buy it, and the money's still with us, and you're probably mad at us, and I'm sorry. Also, remember how we left one of our sons, or one of the kids here? I hope he's still alive and he's in prison. Don't put us in prison, please. And we brought the one son here that our dad said he will die of grief if we lose him. They're rehearsing again and again and again. How could we possibly, in our condition, stand before the man? So fear is a common response if you have to stand before someone in authority and you feel completely out of control. Second, they talk about negotiation and gifts. They say, here's how to talk. Here's what to say. Here's what to hold back. Here's how to couch it. Here's how to impress him. I love that the list of gifts includes pistachio nuts, a very underrated nut in my opinion. Have you had the muffin, the pistachio muffin at Lucky gone? I shouldn't tell more people about this because sometimes it's gone. Stop eating it, but it's amazing. But here's what's happening. They have to go stand before the man who's in an authority and they say, how can we impress? How can we overwhelm? How can we bribe? How can we get out of this alive? So with fear and negotiation and with the giving of gifts to impress, they set out and say, finally, we have to go back to Egypt. You can tell they're not impressed and they're wearied by their own plans because Jacob is resigned at the end of this section. You can almost hear the, in his voice. And he says, as for me, fine, take it all, everything that I love. And if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Their best efforts, their collective genius of mind, their personalities, their gifts, their pistachio nuts, they're not sure it's going to give them favor. And it's in this particular moment and in this context that we come to verse 15. It is as stark a difference. So I want to paint the, the difference between these two things as much as I possibly can. It is completely and utterly unexpected and very, very different than what they thought was going to take place. Verses 15 through the rest, I called feasting and mercy, and this is what we find. This is Genesis 43, 15th verse. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought, we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys." Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the, men had brought the men, when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came, they brought into the house to him the present that they had had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. No amount of preparation, no amount of negotiation, no amount of gift or boundless optimism could have prepared them for this turn of events. They simply did not know. They didn't have eyes to see. They lacked the information and certainly lacked the confidence that it would have been been necessary for them to imagine a reception like this. From the moment that Joseph sees his family, he begins preparations in order to dine with them. However, they don't know that they are about to receive mercy and they enact their plan. They do everything they can Here's Benjamin. Here's our money. Here's some more money. Here's the gift. Also, we're innocent. We're blameless, I promise. They do everything they can, although there are still some things that they probably feel are ominous. The meal at noon, this is mentioned a couple of times. He's going to come at noon. We're supposed to eat at noon, would have been seen as a scary thing to them. Apparently, noon was a common time to execute people. You remember an old Western? What do you say in the old Western? when you really want to fight somebody I'll see you at high noon is that is that kind of what it is I'll see you partner at high noon right like that's high noon and that's emphasized now there's going to be some instances especially in the next chapter where it's pretty clear that Joseph has thought through the way to test his brothers and maybe just maybe get a little bit of joy and delight out of watching them squirm now I don't know but he's human so it's possible But he sets the time for them to come, and as far as they know, this is going to end badly. The reason is because they're imagining that Joseph is going to act in a human way toward their human efforts, that he is going to use power to control, power to win, power to overwhelm. And so their fear has now given way to basically paranoia. I love the exchange they have. Oh no, we're going to eat at high noon. He's probably going to kill us. I bet it's because of the money. It's probably because we stole they have this conversation back and forth. You can almost see that they're bringing things up in, in line. One of them says, he's going to beat us up. He's going to assault us. It's going to be horrible. Another one speaks up and says, oh, he's going to make us slaves, he's servants. And then I don't know where this comes from, but another person says, he'll probably take our donkeys. Which imagine of all the things to worry about. How small and petty the mind of paranoia gets when you're trying to impress your savior, the person who has power over your life. He's trying to impress. They thought that Joseph was like them. They thought that he would punish. How small a mind they have to fear for the lives of their mules. All of this, Simeon staying and Benjamin coming and all the money problems, it was all for our mules. They're they're paranoid with fear. tells us then that Joseph finally comes home and he greets them and he sees them. He asks again the keen questions. Remember he made up the, the ruse of calling them spies, which was a perfect cover for him to ask the questions that he wanted to ask about his father and about his brothers and about his family and about their welfare. And then finally he comes to Benjamin. He's looked past up to this point. He's not broken. He's not broken when the brothers finally bow down, not once but twice, fulfilling the dreams that he had. But he comes to Benjamin, and he sees him, and he cries out in in a Hebrew blessing. He would have used language here, God be gracious to you, my son, in a way that would have been sort of surprising to the brothers, interacting with an Egyptian lord and ruler. And it tells us that it's in this moment when he finally sees Benjamin that he breaks. He breaks with what? He breaks with rage? He breaks with, vin- with uh, wanting to be vindicated? Does he break with resentment for them? Does he say, ah, finally you brought Jacob's favorite, his youngest. I'll show you how you guys treated the youngest. No, it tells us that Joseph was broken with compassion. He has to leave. I love this phrase. His compassion grew warm for his brother. He sought a place to weep. He, he totally breaks. He has to excuse himself. Weefs uncontrollably to the point where he has to clean himself up and can barely get out the words serve the food. And it's here in this moment the fearful, the completely weak, the dying of hunger, the, ne- the poor negotiators, those who gathered gifts, the trying to overpay to impress, the constantly seeking to deflect blame and to justify themselves, it's in this moment that rather than receiving wrath, they receive mercy. They have no idea why any of this is happening. They're brought in. Rather than being executed, they're lined up from oldest to youngest. Again, an unexplainable oddity. How does this man exclaim in Hebrew, God be gracious? And how does this man know? I mean, it's one thing to know we're all brothers, but how does he know exactly how to line us up by age in order? This gift of mercy, this food that is offered from Joseph's own table, is received by them in a way that says that the bible says they were amazed somehow strangely in a foreign place in the moment of their need when everything in their own power seems like it's failed they feel almost a familial mercy has been given to them imagine all the egyptians gone just the brothers reunited Simeon back Benjamin there Joseph in their midst all lined up according to order with a massive wonderful feast Right in the midst of a famine. And all of this happening not by their own doing. All of this happening in the midst of their weakness, all of this happening when their fear has taken over and led to paranoia and their negotiation didn't work and they're arguing with each other. I'm guarantee all of this happening not because they believed the pistachios had finally moved the man. They're amazed. How could this be? How could we receive mercy? And it ends on one of the most hopeful notes of this whole section. the end of chapter 43, they drank and they were merry with him. They feasted. The hobbits' feast. Song. Mirth. That's where it ends. And it's right here, especially again in Genesis 43, where I believe that Joseph's story is so amazing because it paints pictures it gives us hints in shadowed form of the story of the whole bible now you can't take make too much of, of imagery and metaphors sometimes because anytime you start to press a parable too much you'll say but that doesn't fit up exactly but if we pause for a moment we say well let's not do that but let's just think about the picture that we're seeing Do we see shades and shadows? Is Is there moments of light that come through that show us the story of the whole Scripture? And I would say again and again and again, yes. Because it turns out that human beings understand their need to a greater degree than we often let on. Sometimes we're just hemmed in. Sometimes circumstances push us to realize I have needs and difficulty that I'd never admitted before. Sometimes it's our own sin that pushes us there. Sometimes it's the sin of others. Sometimes the land just won't give food. But nonetheless, what human beings need more than anything is to admit our need. Sometimes God's greatest gift is to stir us with guilt or fear or lack so much that we finally say, I have to go. I have to turn. I have to run to him. There is someone who can give, is someone who can provide, is someone in total control. This is the story of the greatest need of humankind. And the long list of ways that humans have approached God, not wanting to, but realizing that they must, the long list of the way that humans have tried to impress on our own effort would go on longer than we have time for. We try to bargain, we try to blame shift. We try to give gifts to impress. We try to negotiate. We try to outwit. All the while not realizing that it is God's knowledge of us, his love of us, his family-like care that is going to invite us to his table. But it's only when we realize there's nowhere else to go. I imagine Jacob not wanting to send Benjamin, saying to his sons, okay, is, is anywhere else? Is there anywhere else there's food? reminds me of Jesus interacting with his disciples in John 6. There's a moment where it tells us that a lot of the disciples turned away and left him. And Jesus looks at his disciples that are remaining and says, do you want to go away too? Simon Peter, in a moment of brilliance, says to him, where else shall we go? You have words of life. We die everywhere else with you, life. That's the position that they've come to. The gospel tells us, the story of the Bible tells us, that if you would see that Jesus is your hope, if you would see Him as the one who can provide and can care for you, if you would come to God through Him and set down all of your negotiating and all of your fear, if you would bring and be honest about your guilt and about your sin, then you would be invited into a table. You see, there's a picture ongoing throughout Scripture that says that one day, Finally and totally, the greatest picture for our reunion with God in Christ is a meal. The end of Revelation, once all the crazy stuff is gone. Revelation 19, the angel finally declares and says, Write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who sit at the family meal. Blessed are those who come. If you come through Jesus Christ and see your need, not because of anything you've done, but you will receive mercy that will be amazing to you, abundant mercy. You will sit down and share in all good things forever. This is the whole story of the Bible pictured for us in small part by the story of Genesis 43. My desire and my hope on a morning like this is that those of us who understand these things and could have told this story or could have explained it in the same way, that we would be reawakened to the amazement that ought to come by our receiving mercy. The reality is that these brothers had sold Joseph, the one in charge, off. They had betrayed him. They should have been high noon put to death, but they received a feast. And my desire would be that none of us here who know the good old stories of the Bible or understand these things would yawn at this. One thing that happens through the whole story is that the brothers are slowly awakened in amazement to what is happening around them. And my prayer is that we would be awakened again in amazement. One day, you will have unthinkable need. You will be laid bare more than you've ever felt you've been laid bare in your whole life. You will stand before the one who has all authority, who has the authority to cast into hell. You will have nothing there, no words left to say, nothing to negotiate, no gifts to impress, nothing to overwhelm God, and completely inexplicably, because he loves you, because he knows you, you will be welcomed in through Jesus Christ. You'll be walked into the banqueting hall, a table long set with a feast, your name on a place setting. This is the story of Scripture. We must be amazed at this. And if you've never abandoned yourself, if you've never put down all the other ways to impress and said, I'm just going to come and to ask the Father to receive me, then I would invite you, please, please come to the feast. There is mercy for you. Let's pray. God, my greatest desire would be that I could wake every day and not forget, to wake every day and not be thoughtless, to wake every day and to not pretend that somehow I have it together. I want to be amazed again, not to lord it over others or to be self-righteous. God, I am needy. I have sinned. I feel the effects of a fallen world. But you are gracious and you're kind and you're merciful. And so I pray that you would remind me again of your love and your care. And I pray for all of us here. Pray that when we think about the hope we have for the future in our feasting, that we'd see it as mercy through and through. Help us to cling to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.